0: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where Freethought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week I'm coming to you from sunny Las Vegas, where I've been watching my daughter compete in the Las Vegas classic, Girls Volleyball Tournament. And as anyone who's been reading our articles at Quillette for the last year or three will know, female athletics is something our editors also think about professionally, in response to the threat to the integrity of female sports coming from trans-identified biological men who seek to compete in female competitions. In recent months, common sense seems to be winning the day on this issue in some spheres, with world athletics voting to exclude biological men from competing in elite female competitions if they have gone through male puberty. And yet, much of the media is still peddling the claim that such exclusions are inherently transphobic. In late March, in fact, ESPN decided to celebrate Women's History Month by celebrating none other than Leah Thomas the also-ran male swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania, who suddenly began dominating the pool after announcing a transition to the women's category in 2021. Earlier this year, I interviewed Mary O'Connor, an Olympic rower who rode for Yale University in the late 1970s and who is now a member of the Independent Council on Women's Sports, or ICONS, a US-based group that lobbies for the protection of female sport. This week, my guest is O'Connor's colleague, ICON's co-founder, Marshy Smith, a former University of Arizona swimmer and backstroke champion who began raising the alarm about Leah Thomas even before Thomas's controversial appearance at the NCAA swimming championships in 2022. And just a note about the audio you hear, I conducted my interview with Smith at Robert Irvine's restaurant at the Tropicana Hotel and Casino where I was staying. That's the noise you hear in the background. People eating, drinking, gambling, and generally Las Vegasing. Thanks very much to the staff at the Tropicana for allowing me to record our interview. Whether you're in town for a day or a week, the Tropicana Las Vegas is ready to play.
1: My whole technique of a race was, if I don't get out as fast as possible from the first stroke and just die, and hope that I touch the wall before people catch up to me. That was my technique because that's just physically, over years and years of swimming and racing, what my coaches and I learned, that's how I have to race. I got a full athletic scholarship to the University of Arizona. Both my parents, they didn't, they didn't graduate college themselves. My mom is a Korean immigrant from just a rural farm town in South Korea. I'm the oldest of four kids, so we were living paycheck to paycheck at the time, like most families. The scholarship, to be honest, was the reason I chose Arizona. Aside from, yes, the coaching staff was wonderful, and it was a top 10 swim program in the United States, but that made the difference. So that's part of the reason I'm so passionate about ensuring that girls have that opportunity, because that scholarship was a lot of the reason that I am sitting here today because that decision to go to U of A led to a national title, Pac-10 championship. I was team captain and just kind of set me on the path to the rest of my life.
0: So when Mary O'Connor, your colleague at Icons, was on the show, of course, she's a little bit older than you. She's from another generation. She spent a lot of time talking to me about the challenges that female athletes, U.S. collegiate athletes in particular, faced during you know, the 1970s. Uh, how does her experience compare to yours? I think you graduated in 2006. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'm um, kind of embarrassed to look back and think about how little I appreciated or knew of the women before me, like Mary O'Connor, who had to fight and claw to get a locker room, to even get equal respect. There's so many stories, so many stories that I've learned now, because in peeling back, like, how did we get here? How did we end up here? Because I was living in this, you know, I feel like the golden age now of equality where I took that for granted, absolutely, that I I was treated the same as men, I was an equal champion to men, I had all the facilities, you know, all the gear, everything.
0: So at that time, if somebody had told you (laughs) in the future, maybe in a decade, a decade and a half, there are going to be biological men who are going to be trying to compete with women in women's sports and be taken seriously in that capacity, how would you have reacted?
1: It was so far out there that that's why the urgency and the alarms were not blaring for me for so long. I mean, now that I know kind of the history and how long actually this ideology, the gender ideology has been quietly pushed through in every sport at this point, I realized, wow, we I was asleep at the wheel.
0: So if we could go back, tell us a little bit about how your own career progressed once you were in university.
1: My freshman and sophomore year, they, they were okay. I, my performances were okay. And actually, uh, Olympic trials was the summer between my sophomore and junior year. And I was completely mentally burnt out just didn't want to be in workouts, I was slacking, I I wanted to be anywhere else but in the pool, and that was my frame of mind, and I went into Olympic trials and did predictably terribly, really terribly, like embarrassingly terribly, where I was certainly, if I wasn't last, I was close to last place, and I got out, and I went over to my coach, Rick DeMont, at the time, and I immediately decided I'm never ever going to feel like this again.
0: So, when you say you never wanted to feel like that again, you know, that could go in several different directions. Like, for instance, it could mean you were just going to quit the sport entirely.
1: No, that didn't cross my mind. It was, I'm never going to put myself in this position again where I am just, it, it was an embarrassment. So I showed up the next season, and one of the assistant coaches, Bill Barons, did this kind of goal-setting workshop that a lot of coaches do. But he talked to us about specifics and how do you achieve a goal. He asked us to go home and write a goal sheet for the season to write down what race, what time you wanted to go, what results that would entail.
0: So all these women swimming together, I've talked to women in other sports who talk about this kind of sisterhood that develops with their fellow athletes. Is, is that the kind of environment that you were swimming in?
1: We were like sisters because we trained together, we lived together, we went to class together.
0: Okay, so it sounds like in that kind of environment there was an awareness of the differences between male and female athletic performances, I'm guessing, right?
1: What's kind of unique about swimming is we train together in the same lanes with men. Our coaches are the same. We have the same head coaches. So we have brothers on the team, too, that train with us every day. I would say in swimming, we know more than probably any other sport exactly the the differences between men's athletic advantages over women because we see it every practice, every single day. And we were training 20 hours a week.
0: So when did it click with you that this was going to be your cause? This was going to be something you were going to spend a good chunk of your life doing, including professionally?
1: I guess my peaking moment was the Ivy League championship conference title that Leach. Thomas won, because if you know collegiate swimming, I knew if Leah Thomas is allowed to compete in the conference, there is nothing that's going to stop that person from competing at the national championships. So I was about two weeks ahead of kind of the real huge media storm, and so after I After I witnessed the conference championships, I wrote a personal letter to the NCAA and to Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, and to my school, the U of A, athletic director. This was just me on my own. I felt like I wasn't hearing from actual swimmers to the level of outrage that I I imagined would exist.
0: So, from what I understand, there was also there was a lot of pressure on female swimmers to pretend like all this was fine, including Leah Thomas's own teammates.
1: I've talked to girls on the U Penn team, and that's exactly the case. I mean, the women who spoke out initially and first against Leah Thomas, particularly in the locker room with them they were from what they described kind of ostracized by groups even within their own team so it immediately you're not one team now there are multiple teams within and they're opposing now
0: and and where was the pressure coming from
1: I think it was outside pressure because certainly within the Ivy League they're the most woke the most sympathetic to this kind of situation that they're putting women under. And so the pressure was enormous because the coaches and the athletic department, the athletic director, the head of the Ivy League, Robin Harris, were actively giving them scripts. This is coming from your coaches, whether it's reluctant or not. This is coming from athletic directors, from your university president. And from the conference president. So are you going to have women that fall in line and continue this gaslighting messages that they're being being sent from everyone in leadership on the team to say this is actually right? No, what you feel about being traumatized by this, regardless of your past history... And beliefs and your discomfort, you need to put that aside. I think, yeah, I mean, girls, when they're 18 to 22, and the leadership and the adults in the room are telling them that they have to behave in a certain way, yeah, they, they went along with it initially. And from what I hear is that first person to speak out, there's a lot of turmoil and division.
0: So who was this female whistleblower?
1: I will let her say her name. She has given interviews. If you haven't seen What is a Woman by Matt Walsh, they do interview her at Penn.
0: We will get back to my interview with ICON's co-founder, Marshy Smith, momentarily. But first, I wanted to remind you that here at Quillette, we now have a second podcast stream called Quillette Narrated which consists of spoken word adaptations of selected articles that appear on our Quillette website. And if you haven't visited that website, well, you're not getting the full Quillette experience. This week, you can find essays by Oliver Traldi, Marilyn Simon, Hannah Gall, and John Lloyd, plus a blockbuster piece by the great Heather MacDonald on the recent free speech fracas at Stanford University, Alan Stratton on the perils of corporate LGBT marketing in hockey, a Quillette editorial on attempts to silence Posey Parker in New Zealand, and Nina Paley with her plea, don't let cancellation become banal. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. So this is kind of a delicate question, but, uh, you know, I've seen interviews with Leah Thomas. There's a certain kind of, I don't know what to call it, like detachment from reality. I'm not sure how it would be classified psychologically, but... What's your take on this, the complete insensitivity to the fact that other people object to Leah Thomas imposing on female spaces?
1: I'm certainly not a therapist. I don't personally know Leah Thomas. However, there are many sports affected by this now, and many of these males who identify as transgender are happy to give interviews and so if you listen to straight from the horse's mouth what they say about it and they're for example, you you know, you talk about Leah Thomas, the answer to the question, what do you say to people who think this is unfair? And the response is, Well, I'm happy. That tells you something about a person. And this is consistent with a lot of these men who really kind of boast about bullying their way into women's sports or being the first. You know, Sasha Lowerson in Australia, the surfer, said we could do this the hard way or the easy way when basically bullying the um, surf league into allowing him to compete. This is a common trend that I see. I know that you're an avid disc golfer. Natalie Ryan has given interviews where. Natalie has said um, I kind of always knew even before I started to compete in the female pro open category that I would be good enough to be ambassador of the sport of female disc golf. They tell you and reveal to you kind of their perspective. And I think feminists would say this is just pure misogyny.
0: So critics of what you do, I guess, a group that would overlap with transgender activists would say, there's a few disturbing episodes here, but they're very rare. And, you know, I'm here in Las Vegas interviewing you. The reason I'm here in Las Vegas is because one of my daughters is here at a volleyball tournament. I think it's one of the biggest volleyball tournaments in the world. There's uh, teams from from all over North America. It's just girls, thousands of players here. To my knowledge, I, I don't think there's any biologically male transgender players at this tournament would this be an example of maybe some something someone would cite to say hey the problem you're talking about is exaggerated.
1: It's every sport. There are several volleyball players at least in America that we know of, particularly in high school. There's a 6 foot 5 high school, I believe junior in California right now who's spiking balls on high school girls on a net that's 7 inches shorter than a men's regulation net. He is one of several that we know about. However, you may not know as a spectator that your daughter is competing against a male because they don't keep records. In, in North Carolina, there was a high school team that had an alleged transgender male playing on the girls' high school team who spiked a ball into an opposing player's face, and she was severely injured with concussion and severe neck injury. And they, the school district has forfeited all the games where that player is involved for safety concerns. So this is happening. It's, it's volleyball, soccer, lacrosse, field hockey. These are sports that basketball these are sports that there's a serious safety issue not just a, an issue of fairness like swimming where we're in our own lane so these are things that I don't think parents like you're here at this tournament and you you were unaware of these cases but that player could have been there on a different court and you didn't know about it or you show up to a to a game and you know i'm sure that that girl in north carolina didn't know that she was opposing a male player and could potentially have lifelong long-term health ramifications for playing
0: so for those listening how if they want to help your group independent Council on women's sports uh, how can they help you
1: we're on social media icons underscore women follow us We have petitions on our website. We have a place where you can join the network so that you can stay informed. We send a weekly newsletter to keep you updated on stories in the news related to gender ideology and sports topic, how you can activate yourselves in your own communities within your sports and partner with us because essentially we want to make a team of athletes and parents legal experts, scientists, where we can collectively come together and work to advocate for the female voice.
0: My understanding is that a lot of your work is you sort of act on behalf of women athletes who for one reason or another cannot speak for themselves. They, they can't raise their voice from within their sports. Maybe for much the same reason that some of those UPenn swimmers, at least at first, couldn't Raise their voice against the participation of Leah Thomas.
1: Absolutely, we we never want to out anybody who isn't willing or able to come out publicly. There's a lot of these athletes who will lose sponsorships.
0: And you know, I can attest your group Icons is it's a great resource for journalists because uh, several of the stories I've done at Quillette about uh, the threat to female athletics from. Transgender athletes in the field of disc golf, and also in in powerlifting, that came through the assistance of icons.
1: Well, April Hutchinson, the powerlifter you mentioned in Canada, reached out to us. She felt really hopeless, very stressed and anxious about training for the upcoming national championships. Felt out of control. That's part of. That's part of what got me involved in this in the first place is sitting alone in my bedroom watching the race and just falling apart because I felt like a hopelessness of who is doing something about this surely somebody is doing something and then finding oh no (laughs) now it's you it has to be us
0: well, congratulations on all the great work you've been doing, and, and thank you so much for making yourself available to be interviewed here in the shadow of the, the slot machines here at the Tropicana Hotel.
1: Welcome to Las Vegas.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette podcast. Quillette is where Freethought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to Quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events.
1: Did you know the iconic film, The Godfather, was filmed here at Tropicana? It was also featured in the James Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, and you can see Tropicana's long-running show, La Folie Berger, in the Elvis Presley classic, Viva Las Vegas.